Welcome to Heather Bray 1854 Talks. I'm Ann Baker, joined by my co-host Julie Federa, owner of Heather Bray, a grand Victorian mansion currently undergoing restoration in Caulfield, Melbourne. I'm also so excited to announce that you're joining me as co-host on this series, Anne. Um, uh, the, what our listeners don't know yet is that you have an extensive um, background in journalism and in marketing. And uh, I think, you know, we go back a long way, both personally and professionally. So I think um, you will add so much to this podcast series. Thank you for thank you for jumping on board. Um, I'd also like to express my gratitude for the company today of Tim Gosling and Stephen Holmes. They are so respected in the interior design industry um, here for Stephen first and uh, for both of them in the European market. So I really can't wait to get this podcast underway. Jules, can you share with us how you came to meet Tim and Steve? Absolutely. So uh, back in April last year, my husband and I, Vince, uh, purchased Heather Bray, a, a 1854 historic mansion in Caulfield, Victoria. Um, it's it's not a secret to people who have heard our previous podcast or, or the podcast with the design files or, or seen the Instagram page, but, uh, you know, uh, I had an emotional reaction when we got the keys to that home because I thought, my God, we're in a time when people are knocking our heritage down uh, at an alarming rate. And I thought, well, what can I do as an individual? I can put an Instagram page up and follow the journey and hope to uh, influence others to think differently about our heritage and its preservation. Um, and so that put up that uh, Insta page and we've now got some, you know, 25,000 followers, which is incredible. Um and uh, I, a little, I think it was actually in April or May, I got a recommendation to uh, follow Restoration Chateau. Uh, and I thought, wow, that looks gorgeous. And so I followed that. And, and I think um, one of you, I think it was probably Steve, made a comment about Melbourne. And so I sent him a message and said, me. what do you know about <laughs> Melbourne? And uh, hello from Melbourne. And we got chatting. And uh, next thing you know, you guys are here for Christmas and we've had a look through some beautiful period homes here in Melbourne together and uh, very, very grateful to have you here on the podcast with us. Thank you so much. It's been amazing. It's been the past couple of weeks have been incredible just looking at some of these beautiful historical properties and so forth. Yeah. And we've both been over to Heatherbury as well, so that's been yeah. wonderful. Really so great seeing it. you there. Yeah. In our pilot podcast, The Road to Heatherbury, we shared the story with our listeners about how Julie and Vincent discovered Heatherbury. Can you tell us about how you found the Chateau and what it was that really drew you in? We started Restoration Chateau as a, an Instagram. Actually, Steve started it. And um, we did it just so that, our, you know, my parents and Steve's, you know, family knew that we were alive still. And it literally, yeah. you know, I think it's been six years now. And uh, we have... Wow. We have 30,000 people who are so engaged. Yeah. I think rather like you and your experience, you know, it's just the overwhelming amount of people that want to engage in understanding what you're doing, but also to be part of the journey, either because they're not right at that stage when they can do it themselves, or they want to learn how to do it because it's so important to save these buildings. Yeah. And we didn't really, you know, we and didn't. Not everyone has access to the knowledge or the trades, et cetera, to do that. No, and, and, and it, it's Steve's kind of experience of being able to restore um, buildings and also, I guess, the confidence. Um, he, I, we, We've known each other for, you know, eight years. And I think very quickly into that, he said, gosh, I'd really, you know, I'd love to get my teeth into restoring a building. and One and last project. One last project. You know, and, and he kept showing me buildings in, in, I'm hold you in England. <laughs> well, this is going to take it. The shutter is going to take us another 20 years, I think. Yeah. Um, but he kept on showing me buildings and we kept on looking at them going, well, you know, in England, there are very, very few buildings that haven't been completely and utterly someone's had a go at doing yeah. them or, you know, they've they've mucked around with them or there are about 10 or 20 million. Mm. And we started then looking at Italy. And I think by the time we got through into Italy, we decided that we wanted some space. You know, we actually really needed to breathe in, in a building. We wanted a building that was historically important mm. and architecturally important and had something to, to say to the world in a kind of in a in a form of you know restoration that hadn't been mucked around with, and which we also share in a way, which we completely we, share. Yeah. And I think it's been really interesting that he managed to find. We we spent two years looking, mm. and we looked through Italy. Everything in Italy was <laughs> in in the in the kind of towns, 
They were wonderful, you know, buildings of architectural interest, but they were very, very small. And there was no land next to mm. them. In the kind of countryside in Italy, they are incredible. But interior-wise, they're farmhouses with wonderful beams and they're yep. medieval. And so we decided then... But not quite what the shadow is. No, and then, you know, the same ding, this thing came out of the blue. Oh, and it was amazing. the only building, the only chateau that we went to see. Mm. And we both walked in and, you know, this is incredible. It had been untouched for... About 30 years. Um, and can, longer. can you just describe the scale of the chateau for the listeners? Because it's quite a different scale to Heatherbury. Yeah, it's. It, <laughs> Heatherbury's really cute. Ours is literally like, <laughs> like a hotel. Yeah. It's, it's quite deceiving because if you look at it from the front, it, it only you can only see three, three floors. Mm. And it's not until you get, you get around the back because the, the chateau is actually on the side of a hill mm. that you see the, the four floors. And it's. It looks like a little doll's house from the front, but when you get around the back, it's it's, it's much, much bigger. And when, when and you say doll's house, is that what you call a mansard roof that you have at the front? What is that architecturally? Yeah, yeah I mean, the mansard roof is, is, is a bizarre fascination that the next door chateau where we've got a tree line avenue that meets the next door tree line avenue, which is Chateau Balois, was designed by Joseph Mansard. And that was using um, the idea of the mansard roof, which he created as the blueprint for Versailles. Mm. And that was in about 1640. What's really amazing is that then this was adopted as a design style for, with Napoleon, who then you know commissioned um, the Hussmanian architecture France. all the yeah. way through yeah. Paris. So yeah. every building fits into these very, very strict criteria of how the angle should be to give you enough room in the mansard to actually live you know, with an entire with floor. And the height yeah. and the window proportions. Da, 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 da. And so actually, our chateau looks like it should be in Paris, and mm-hmm. it's not. It's actually in the middle of the countryside, right next to the chateau that actually the guy who created the whole kind of mansard roofs, you know, you know, was yeah. born. So and, oh. and that's that level of history is just unknown here in Australia. That's incredible. I think historically to understand, in, you know, this was rebuilt in, in 1911. It's got the most incredible history. So it started off at about 1730s with the first building on the site that we're on. And then in about the 1830s, 40s, they did a rebuild. And we've got photographs of that in a very typical Norman architecture. So it's when you incredible. look at the pictures of that. And then in 1911, the owners, um, who are the directors of Bon Marché, decided to redevelop the whole building into this most incredible Husmanian style. And that's when they really enlarged it, added all of the... Um, the plaster work. And um, Steve, you were the one that kind of ended up finding that the architect was the same designer as the Ritz in Paris. Yes. Oh, wow. Yep, George, George Farsi. <laughs> well, so it's... And so when you, when you went to this house for the first time, do you remember walking through and how you felt and what you said to each other when you left? Yeah. It, I mean, for me, it was... <laughs> <laughs> I was wearing a fur coat. <laughs> yeah, and, and a bearskin hat. And a bearskin hat. And he looked at me and thought... Mm, I'm not sure how much DIY we're going to get out of him. <laughs> <laughs> but we, yeah, I, I think we, there was something very, very special about it. I mean, all the original chandeliers and, and keep the um, picture of all the rooms, all the sh- all the shutters were closed up and all the windows, nothing had been opened up for for at least 30, 40 years. And, Did it have furniture and, in there? Yeah. Yep, covered, the, in blan- yeah, but like covered, covered in blankets. Covered in blankets. Blankets um, and things, but none of the, the original, original stuff. Right. Uh, that came later. Right. Um, yeah. But all the original, but the most amazing chandeliers in the rooms and the most beautiful yeah. um, uh, staircase, very similar to the Ritz in Paris. And, and it was just, it, you could see what it must have been like back in its heyday. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you looked at the ceiling and the columns and the plaster work and you thought, there's no way we're not going to say yes to this. <laughs> so you knew. As soon oh, as you yeah. No, no, it. absolutely. You know, and then, you know, <clears throat> and Steve was so brilliant at saying, well, no, no, we can do this, you know. And I think we should frame the piece of paper that we started off with in terms of our, our budget. Because oh, yeah. it's one, one of the, you know, when you kind of go, oh, it couldn't be about this. We just kind of gauge, you know, that's about 20, that's about 30,000. That's We're going to do the roof first because that's the most important thing to do. You know, da, da, da. Mm. And then what was even more bizarre was that we didn't even get to kind of, you know, point number one on our budget list because... They went, yeah, of course, um, you can't do the roof because you can't get up to the chateau because the drives have disappeared. You've got to put all the drives, of, yeah. you know, from uh, the kind of road well, going all going the way first. up to the chateau. And I, I don't know how many metres. It's, it's a long way. It's about 100 and... Yeah. 
about that 200 meters. So that was missed in the budget calculation well, straight up. We just, yeah. I mean, it was just that rookie error one um, <laughs> where we went, but oh. One, yeah. thing, one thing we have found is, as well is that uh, trying to get anything done in France is probably about three times the, the amount as what it is in the UK. So, so just give the listeners a sense. How far are you from Paris? Or how far are you from the nearest major town where you can source product, for example? Um, we're probably, well, from Paris, we're about two and a half hours away. Yeah. Uh, from our nearest town uh, for sourcing products and so forth, we're only about 20 minutes away. Okay. So it's, it's not too bad. And that, um, where is where is that? We're not too far from Bayou and right. then St. Lowe. Where the tapestries come um, from. Ah. The Bayou tapestry, really it's famous a, thing. Now let's put some numbers to the scale of your new home to paint a picture for our listeners. I'm told the chateau features 57 rooms, no less than 22 ensuite bathrooms, eight state rooms and 27 acres of parkland. Tell us more. We're getting, as an example, we're working on the restoration of the kiosk at the moment, which is a very small building on the, on the island. And the roof is being done by a local um, artisan. So it's being fully restored by the, uh, the artisan. I would say at the moment we're looking at about uh, 80% of the work we're doing ourselves versus 20% by um, by local artisans. Yeah, yeah I mean, the, the, bit, us actually. the really, yeah. really technically complicated, like doing a roof for the, the, for the chateau, um, that's being done by uh, a team of people that we found that were really, really good. Um, the actual day that we took the roof off our building, our chateau, was the day that Notre Dame caught fire. Oh, and oh, that's... again, the, the most extraordinary. So everyone was incredibly emotional. And then the, wow. um, the kind of roof workers came down and said, in the lead, up on the, on the roof, we found the signature of a guy who actually was one of the most famous roofers in, you know, from 1911, dated 1911. And he actually worked on Notre Dame as well. So you just go, God, this is every Mm. single step. There's a connection to Mm. its French history, the kind of things that are happening globally. Um, We should say geographically also that the other part that makes me laugh is that we are, you know, for the first two years, we were so busy restoring the chateau. And someone said, gosh, so do you ever get any time to the beach? And we went, what beaches? And we didn't realize that we were literally 15 to 20 minutes away from the D-Day landings. So the, oh. that's why the chateau became during the Second World War the kind of pinnacle and the kind of center point for first of all um, the SS you know, Nazis who, who had taken over the chateau, um, and then the U.S. Wow. First Division who took it over as um, Eisenhower took it over as the um, headquarters for the Overlord campaign. Um, and again, it's just, that's been a remarkable, remarkable journey. But geographically, having that just so close to the D-Day landings. And actually every Christmas, this is our first Christmas since we've had the chateau, that we don't, you know, we'd normally go for a wonderful walk um, for, you know, Christmas Day on the actual beaches, D-Day beaches, which is incredibly moving because there's just this wide open expanse. And you see all the black and white photographs there and just the thousands and thousands of people that were kind of, you know, gunned down and gave their lives, you know, literally on the doorstep. Wow. And we've kept quite a lot of the bullet holes. So, you know, the chateau's covered in bullet holes. And we've kept quite a lot of them. Yeah. So, you know, stuck in the cornices. Um, There's one or two that we've taken out through, you know, there's just no, you know, you don't want to kind of look to look like it's completely bomb bomb damaged, but, you know, it's, it has gone through. Holding on to that history of the home as you go through and showing it respect. And the the writing on the wall for, you know, on the top, top bit um, where your father's going to have his bedroom it's the most incredible. It's just very, very simply, you know, three shoulders, shoulders during the uh, three soldiers. Sh- yeah, soldiers. <laughs> <laughs> three soldiers um, from the you know, first division who have written their kit layout. There's Ernie Wilf and there's another chap, and they've kind of put underpants, socks, shirts <laughs> too. And I, you know, it's a very simple moment that just yeah. captures that. Kit layout on the floor in a room upstairs and the, and the top and you know it's beautiful. That's really really quite you know quite important. Mm-hmm. I think to keep that that sense of and we, and we found the same in, in at Heatherbury. We recently discovered that John Holland, who had built tripled the size of the home in eighteen eighty, had actually signed one of the walls 
Britain, John Holland, uh, <laughs> Caulfield, um, and, you know, so we, we're actually mm -hmm. going, we've taken off the calcimine paint and you can see that very clearly now. And I'm going to put a frame around it and not touch that yeah, piece. Yeah, and don't touch that yeah. piece. Yeah. Exactly what we're going to do. We're going to kind of make sure that that's covered up so mm. that, you know, that's kept. Then going back to the earlier, you know, question of finding things where was we were two years into the restoration. So we've now, we're at six years. You're, I cannot believe how much you've done since We're April. at uh, how many months? One, yeah, you're not, <laughs> you're not even months. counting years yet. You're just doing no, months. No, that's true. And you're still smiling and you're not, you know, not on the ground quite yet sobbing. I've just had a few days off. So <laughs> <laughs> we'll see how I am in a month. Um, we're about to head into the hugest year. I mean, last year was huge, but this year um, will be gargantuan, I think. So um, maybe we'll chat this time next year and see how I am. Uh, I think it's really worth doing, you know, when you do catch up and you, you know, every year, every six months is a massive step forward in mm. different directions and things. That, That's true. I mean, you're, you know, Steve was um, during lockdown, during COVID, which we all went through. It became an incredibly important part to a lot of people because Steve was in in the chateau and I was in London, mm. and uh, he found so many things stuffed in the heating vents, oh, wow. and he could see how much you know the the family responded so so well much to you know the work and the passion that we we were putting back in here that they suddenly gave us a lot of the furniture which they went do you want it it's in the barn at the top we took it out of you know in the 1950s after the Second World War, and you know. There is a barn full of the most incredible pieces. Mm. And so we're starting to restore all of that uh, as well as the sculpture. And um, and it's great that you actually have the skills to do that. I mean, Tim, you, it's it's uh, incredible that both of you can be here. But, Tim, you have an incredible history, which I think started in the theatre, in theatre design, but then moved into interior design and furniture design at the very highest level, which you still do today. Yeah, I'm, I'm very, very lucky that this is my world. Um but then, you know, I think I'm incredibly lucky to have Steve that goes, yeah. that's insane. Why are you doing that? <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> okay, no, no. But so I, I am, I couldn't, you know, if you asked me to put a kind of a hook in a wall, it would be an interesting point. Um, and because I was trained as an artist and uh, you know, I trained as a theater designer. So everything that I do with my hands is meant to reflect an individual thought process and um, a mark. So when I paint a wall, you know, Steve wants to make all the marks disappear. And I just <laughs> DNA wise don't know how to do that. Yeah. And he goes, I could see marks on it. I go, what do you, because <laughs> well, I don't paint in one line going but all the way. Through. I, I just don't know how to do that. But that's the beauty of who you are as a couple. As a couple, yeah. Because you are practical and you are conceptual and so both of you so clever yeah. in, in, in your unique way. And I don't know whether you've done this, you know, with, with Vince, whether you, in order to kind of keep, you know, when you have that dream about how you're restoring a house, and it's a big question because, you know, what do you take it back to? Um, what are you going to put back in there? You know, what are the things that you have to let go? Some of the things that you, we have a kind of rule that if, you're, if you've got to take something out, you've got to replace it with something that, that feels right aesthetically as well as um, its intrinsic soul. You we, know? we have that conversation so It's a big thing. Yeah. And we've, we started, we built a model of the chateau during lockdown to have that debate about the landscaping, what we were going to add to it, because the park is colossal. I mean, mm. you know, it is. And just to give you an idea to the listeners, uh, Tim, Steve oh. and I recently went through Ripponley uh, and the beautiful gardens that it has, and yours are much more extensive. Yeah, they're, they're <laughs> twice the size yeah. or over twice the size of Ripponley. And, and older. And uh, Ripponley is one wonderful inspiration, but the yeah. So the gardens were originally laid out. We have the original garden plan, which dates back to uh, I'd say about the eighteen fifties, and we have half of it. And it's just tantalising to have half the garden so design. Cool. That is and you so go, cool. So what, where's the other half? And you go, oh, I've seen it around, <laughs> and you kind of go, because because at that moment when we when found that. I can't tell you how big a moment this was. I would around with glee. I don't know about you yeah. guys. Because when you, yeah. up until that point, you looked out and you just had a fantastic expanse of, of, of grass and mature trees and you had the lake and the waterfall and a, a kind of, you know, a summer house on an island. But you didn't really understand the structure. And so all these incredible concentric paths mm. wrapped around the entire estate. It's very garden in style. So it's very, very similar to the same 
well, the same period, uh, roughly the same time that uh, Frederick Sager was creating Rip and Lee. He'd be the best yeah. one to describe it. Yeah. So it's, um, but yeah, it's it's uh, it's a wonderful place, isn't and it? And we've just it's put very... those back. And as we took the, the top of the soil off with the digger, underneath the soil is all the gravel. Oh wow! The kind of palm trees that are arriving, kind of England. Shh. Um, and then I kind of sneak them through. But actually, I've also started kind of falling in love with the fact that actually since Rip and Lee, you started showing me what the palm trees could be in the garden and the park. Mm. Yeah, it's it's a very, I mean, again, gardenesque as a style of garden is very exotic. and But I never understood that when you kept on plonking these palm trees in the, in the park. I kept on going, <laughs> I don't understand. Why are we planting palm trees? Um, it's very, uh, at Melbourne, we have lots of palm trees here. Yeah. And I think that that's been really interesting to see how you kind of get this together. And right. and so is there, have you had any inspiration by the palm trees that you've seen here? Yeah, I've fallen in love with them now. Yeah. And ferns. Like completely <laughs> and utterly. And actually after Rip and Lee, the fernery there was so incredibly oh, beautiful. It was, wasn't it? That, you know, we've got this these cathedrals of these incredible mature trees and they have, you know, roots going through the park where you can create these incredible um, fern spots now. So we're definitely ah. going to put those back. Will there be a fernery to definitely. rival the one oh, at Ripponley? I am so, gosh, that would be gorgeous, wouldn't it? It really would. I'd yeah. love to. I'd love to. Hearing you talk about the meticulous decision-making process for every element of the chateau, how do you go about staging a project of this size? You know, from the interior rooms versus exterior versus the gardens. I think the most important thing is making, I think most of our attention up until now has been on the restoration of the chateau and making sure it's watertight and so forth and just making, and just just getting it, the, the bones of it watertight. And, and it's only just now that we can create or focus, start focusing just little bits at a time mm. on the uh, on the garden. So for instance, around the lake, we're starting to uh, take down a lot of the undergrowth of trees that what might not have necessarily been there before, just to try and get the views back again. So... And that's so little things. We had a very good friend of ours who came and stayed over from uh, over uh, summer, and he's a head gardener uh, in a huge estate up in Scotland. So he um, basically went around with a a, a can of uh, paint and and marked out which trees to take down. Exactly, he loves it, pink paint. It was pink paint <laughs> everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> so so yeah, I mean little things. I mean it's nice to, every now and then. It's just mm-hmm. nice to have a break from from doing work in the chateau and just just get outside and just. Do a little bit of work on the outside as well. So it's, and mm. if anything as well, your uh, Tim's mother, uh, she's very good when it comes to pulling so, out weeds. Yeah, for all, all the I've people. I've seen her feature on the page. So, uh, she's yeah. gorgeous. <laughs> the amazing thing about uh, my mother, who's now 83, um, it's the fact that she's got her own kind of following now where, you know, in the morning you wake up and you find her not in her bed. You find her literally outside on the scaffolding, you know, four floors up with a paintbrush. And you think, oh, my goodness, can you, can you please tell me when you're going up? Because, <laughs> you know, there's no one to supervise you. And that's, uh, that's the secret of, of anti-aging, I think. Oh, and that she loves that. You in know, your when mind, you, in your, but she, I yeah. can do this. The idea of being in the park and, and you know, it's for her. It's just she, she loves, loves it, it so yes. much. And, you know, digging away under the kind of trees and, you know, she is, you know, combating the ivy against every single, you know, it's, it's a battle <laughs> to the death. But with the kind of the balance trying to do the chateau and the park, the interesting thing is that you can sort of with the chateau go, right, we'll deal with some of the state, state rooms here. We'll do with this in about three years. We'll do all that next year. With the garden, once you start, the nightmare is you can't tell nature to stop. And that... That's true. Is, yeah, yeah and that's really, you know, so we did the paths. Oh, my goodness. Mm. We suddenly now have miles of paths to weed. And um, that's been an interesting process because, we, you know, we've interviewed various different people to talk about whether we can find, a, you know, a gardener to to help us, you know, pulling out the weeds because that's what basically that's what we all run around doing all the time when <laughs> during the summer. And um, it's well, quite... almost a call to action here on this podcast. Oh, we so need help on but that one. Tell me yeah. what's what's the bio? What's, what's the job <laughs> description, guys? <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, you know, you can see why a building that, you know, had an estate this big, you know, there, had, there were 12 live-in servants because, you know, mm. just to keep it functioning, you know, even so is there if a it's servants area in the, in the, the, the chateau? entire top floor has the servants. One, one um, half. One right. half of the whole chateau has and, bedrooms. And is there, so a, is there a demarcation like there is at Heatherbrae between the uh, the staff area and the 
No. Except the home? Ah, interesting. Um, you can only tell by the size of the door from the door case. So right. the doors are much smaller in yep. height. But one side actually faces, so the side that faces the park over the back from the chateau, they're much, much higher door, doorways. Right. And the side that faces the front uh, for the servants. So and socially, the interesting thing is that right in the middle of this, and it's in the Balois Chateau as well, on the top floor, opposite the servants' rooms, is the billiard room. Right. Now, in England, socially, that would be absolutely yeah. unacceptable because A, you're making noise, B, it's a gentleman's thing after dinner. Mm. And I think hurt. here too. And and so you I, but it, we in, tend to follow the British model here. No, no. So and in France, it just seems to be that's not where mm. it was broken down into. Um, and you, we just next to that is uh, Charles de Gaulle's bedroom. He was a very good friend of the family. He used to come come and stay on a regular basis. Oh wow! I don't think Eisenhower and uh, de Gaulle got on terribly well, but you know there are photographs of them together because they were you know obviously they're trying to work out how to get you know the world back up and running again. Mm. Um, but it is really extraordinary to have the kind of the greats of, of, you know, of France and America, you know, at the Chateau and having, you know, photographs of them mm. or even, you know, video footage is just so surprising. I mean, Steve keeps on constantly finding these things. And and know. so at Heatherbray, we have our own um, uh, far more humble uh, collection of uh, history, you know, historic items. But uh, we're going to dedicate one of our hallways for you know, photography and, um, you know, pieces of But you have the stables newspaper. as well. Oh, my we goodness. Do. Those yeah, are <laughs> wonderful. Yeah, they're great. Um, and used right up until the 1990s. Um, Incredible, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and, and completely original, right down to little pieces of baling twine that have sat there for 150 years and yeah. are almost falling apart. But um, so have you guys thought what you'll do with all of those historic items? Will you have them in one space or will you share them throughout the house or...? We are, so we keep in contact with the descendants of the original family mm. that um, rebuilt the chateau back in 1911. Mm. And what we really want to do is devote one room to... Our museum room. Yep, museum room yeah, uh, to the family. Room. And even to the point where we've just been given back uh, by, by Jean-Pierre, one of the descendants, a, a book that dates back to... What books? So it's 1148. Um <laughs> So the extraordinary thing is that when we talk about the chateau being built on that site and the first building is about 1730, we should predate this by the fact that just further down by the waterfall and the lake is a chapel, which is 1148 Knights Templar, and it used to have a monastery connected to it. And that monastery over time fell to bits and they rebuilt out of that monastery the farm and the farm kept on functioning. The chapel is still there. It's not in great condition. And um, it's just extraordinary that that's the whole concept of the um, commandery. So it's kind of the Knights Templar watch station. There were 13 mm. sites in the whole of France. And ours then, that's why our chateau survived the French Revolution, because it was basically run by the Knights of Malta. Um, it's very complicated to get hold of the medieval history. And we're only just starting on that now. But these three books give us a kind of really big head start mm. into the existence of the library that used to be there, which is probably completely and utterly destroyed now. Mm. If all those records went to Caen and, the, you know, and sadly during the kind of Second World War, during the kind of fighting, we obliterated, you know, Caen. Mm. And, you know, to have these records now and to go through them. So we were sharing them with the curators of the Sone Museum recently. Then fast forward to 1911, we have all the original correspondence and letters from... Yeah. Uh, Madame Savary to her husband. Every How have they been kept? Like in in, in cylinder boxes. I mean, they're right. in great condition Incredible. with all the original plans and oh, the, the invoices. invoices. From the oh it's, my goodness! They have all the original invoices that date back to 1911. As well as restoration, it seems that all of you are not just embarking on a restoration process. You're lifting the lid on portions of history almost by default. Mm. Mm. And you're looking at the craftsmen that used to be involved and yeah. you have their names and the companies that, you know, used to do this work. And some of them are still in existence and it's being able to then get them to then help you work. You know, the, the biggest thing that we've learned is that the quality level of what they put in in the big, you know, 1911 build is so staggering. Mm. Um, but the quality level of it survived because it was so beautifully made. Yeah. And, um, right. you know, the plaster work is exceptional. I think. 
the nice thing too is that, um, again, talking about bits and pieces of furniture coming back to the chateau, it's just nice to, you see a picture or an image of the fireplace in the dining room, for instance, and it had a massive great pair of androns. Um, so for anyone who doesn't know what androns are, they're like a, a giant... Um, uh, fire dog. Like a fire dog, mm. exactly. And so these are, they're massive. And we saw them put away in storage and we, and I thought, where, where did they go? Exactly. Yeah. And, and the minute we, we brought them back and put them back into where they were originally 100 years ago, it was just it like... sense. Yeah. But it yeah. just, it felt almost... I felt love like, that. Yep. Like a shiver down your spine at the same time. That yeah. was, it was made for that area. And, wow. and right down to paintings, we have uh, some of the original oil paintings that used to hang in the uh, the Grand Salon. They've just recently come back. And uh, and we know exactly where they used to hang. So we're going to put them back up in the, in the original places. And are they places. all in good condition or yeah i mean one of them is it's massive it would probably be about what at least about six foot tall by... i think all of you know all of them def- you know definitely need cleaning mm. but that's the case with you know all of the artifacts in the chateau slowly but i mean he's brilliant at that i can't believe you know he knows how to do half of those things you know he taught me how to clean ormolu which just for all your kind of oh, listeners yeah. out there when you know the ormolu is gilded metal and the worst thing you can ever do is take a kind of you know silver buffer or kind of something to it and take off the gilding take off the gilding yeah Yeah. and you know it's amazing when you know he said the simplest processes is if you can take it to bits just boil it in hot water Mm. and all the dirt just literally just comes off and suddenly you have the most beautiful gilding Mm. but save you water Mm. yeah with a toothbrush right okay i'll uh, I'll know that yes (laughs) top tip for today yeah heating how how do you heat um, a, 57 a, room. a big scale <laughs> in a way that's faithful to <laughs> the home. Well, we had a little chat about that, didn't we? Um, yes. Because at Heatherbray, I mean, we, again, we are, you know, I don't even know how many rooms we are, but significantly smaller than your chateau. Um, it, it was an issue for us too. And we've chosen to have a, um, a two um, prong system of heating the home. One is through an Actron system, which is ducted through the ceiling, heating and cooling. The other is through um, electric-based heating panels in each room um, that are then linked back to a solar farm that we're putting on the property. And that will work, uh, I'm pretty sure, very well for us. But over to you guys. How are you going to heat a 57-room chateau with what how, What height are the ceilings? 4.2 metres. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that's an ongoing conversation. Well, I think it's complicated for us, not just because of the scale, but because where we are in the heating conversation worldwide. Mm. So every country is desperately struggling to work out how to move the whole population into something which is more sustainable. Mm. And France is, you know, exactly the same. And over the last kind of, you know, year, we've watched them ban new sales of new um, oil central heating. Brilliant. And they have suddenly tried to get people prepared to be able to burn wood chips mm. in, um, in in stoves. The problem being, though, that the wood chips um, were very cheap to start with, and they they exponentially went crazy over COVID, and they're imported from China. So right. you know it's not the best thing. Plus the fact that actually on a scale for us, it's just unthinkable. Um, you'd end up having to have kind of you know barns full of wood chip in order to be able to do it and can you still use natural gas you Mm. can it's more complicated it's being phased out yeah Yeah, like here like here so and you know you'd think great electricity well you know we're on we're on phase two we've got one more phase to use but the the building was designed for one chandelier per room Mm. and it wasn't designed for you know gazillion dishwashers you know kettles um, you know, everyone rushes into the chateau and suddenly puts in their kind of charges mm. and bedside tables, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, and boof, you know, suddenly before you know yeah. it is, someone puts on the microwave and, you know, and they're downloading Get a film and the whole thing goes down again and, and again and again. And you can't again. have three phase? We can, but that yeah. won't be anywhere near enough. Yeah. You know, okay. it's, it's, it's commercial. I mean, you need to. to commercial really solar farm almost. Yeah. And then we're into the second problem, which because ours is the Monument of France, you know, the whole area, yeah. and because of the chapel, you can't put a solar farm anywhere. You can't put solar power onto the roof. And, you no, know, of so, course not. So yeah. ground source is the next thing you look at. Oh, okay. And you go, thermal. yay. So thermal. But 
thermal relies on your entire house being really, really hermetically sealed. Mm -hmm. And we have, as we said, you know, these incredible tall ceilings of, you know, 4.2 with arched windows mm. and it's original glass and we're not allowed to change the glass. Right. Which I can understand because the glass is handmade, it's beautiful, beautiful yeah. it's wafer thin. Yeah. And you might as well just open <laughs> the windows in the winter and, and yeah. you know, and it's, that that's an issue, but there is a kind of film that, um, that is actually sold in America for a lot of their kind of um, stately homes called, which is done by 3M mm. and that keeps 50% of the heat in. Right. And, and it, can you use that? So we're going to do an, an experiment and trial that mm. on some of the windows and see, you know, putting this film on that will kind of keep some of the heat in. And then obviously the next, the biggest thing is, you know, as Steve keeps on saying is curtains. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Therm thermal line curtains yeah. that will make all the difference. Yes. Um, then, but also we're looking at putting in a, a wood-fired boiler system. Yeah. Right. That will, uh, and what we're, we're planning to do there is put... Um, Install into two fireplaces downstairs in the lower ground section. Mm. That will then bring the hot air up through the ducts up into the, the main state rooms on the top floor. Sorry, on the yeah, so ground floor. So the actual kind of chateau is designed for, it's got floor grills in the state rooms, very similar to a lot of the houses here. Yeah. Um, it's an anathema to England. We just, you don't see any of it right. at all. So there are no systems sold in England that do that, mm. that I that we've been able to find. We found um, one, I think, in, in Spain and one in, in Germany mm. um, that, that you can burn hot, uh, you can burn um, anything in it, including kind of logs, and then uh, a fan which uses up electricity. So you have to keep bearing that in mind. Yeah. Or then push the hot air around the entire ducting, which we obviously need to redo because at the moment the ducting is, you know, the bat motorways for for life and wildlife yes. at the moment. So yeah. we need to address some of those. It's interesting, though, in hearing you speak about the heating, just one issue, what we're doing you know, as you know, as restorers of these old homes is we're problem solving all the way through, aren't we? And yeah. that's yeah. where, yeah. Um, you know, that's where you need to be creative and you need to work with what's out there or you need to, you know, speak to all of the... Absolutely. Um, I have on my desk um, <clears throat> restoration is the management of change. And yep. I have it on big capital letters across my desk I'd because, agree with that. you know, the buildings change their use. People change the way that they live in buildings. Mm. We expect during winter um, to, be to be warm at 24 degrees. Mm. I mean, 100 years ago, that would have been an anathema. Um, it's true. And and I think I shared with you when we were walking through Heatherbrae, um, when we were putting the lineal vents through the ceiling at Heatherbrae, we found um, a few people saying, stop, you've ruined it. Um, and I felt, I felt really, um, you know, wounded by that and, and really went back home and thought to myself, well, have I, have I done the wrong thing here? And a, a, a very kind follower sent me a message and said, you'd be sure that if that technology was available to the people back then, they would have put it in because those places were bloody cold to exactly. live in. Exactly. <laughs> so it's a balance, isn't it? It's a balance between making these beautiful old structures livable, like, you know, in the modern world, but preserving as much of its integrity as we can along the way. Yeah, and I think, you know, how you live in a space and what you want to live in the space and do mm. is a really important thing. I mean... <clears throat> we're still getting to grips with, you know, if you asked us what we would end up using. That's the on the list for, of questions. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, making it a home is the most important thing yeah. to start with. And, you know, how you do that. I think we keep on stepping back and going this, the journey of this mm. is the most important part of it. It's not yeah, it the is. finish. And mm. the fact that we're learning, both of us are learning so much about the Belle Epoque period, the war, the concept of how these buildings have, you know, shaped the world and the people that we are. It's just fascinating. Yeah, it is. It really is. I mean, Melbourne is so such an extraordinary, diverse architectural gem. And, you know, these houses are so important to save. Yeah, they are. And that's one of the messages that we're, we're you know, mutually trying to get out there um, by doing these podcasts, by sharing our pages, um, is, uh, you know, the Colosseum once was a couple of hundred years old and uh, if people in Italy had thought, oh, let's just knock that over and, you know, put high-density housing there, it would not exist today. Melbourne's only a couple of hundred years old but it's one of the most um, 
architecturally stunning examples of the 1800 architecture in the world. Um, and, uh, you know, that that's something I feel very strongly about, that we need to preserve what we have left. Julie, with, um, you know, our work on, on Heather Bray, I think through our tours and through the socials community, what's really come through is how important our history and our heritage is to many facets of our it's community. True. And, and the other thing that I get, you know, I, I talk a lot, as you guys would too, to the followers, you know, through messages, not just, um, you know, what we see through the stories and the, and the posts. Um, there's a lot of people who are shocked at how significant and important Melbourne is in terms of its heritage and its, uh, you know, its, its buildings and its architecture. I was saying uh, to Julie um, when we first met, I remember going back about 20, 25, 30 years ago and literally chaining myself to buildings, trying to prevent them from being demolished. And just for me, it's about, it, it, it's Melbourne was once the most incredible city in the world. With most the, the fashionable. Absolutely. Mm. And literally being away for the past 20 years and, and seeing how much has been demolished within that space of time, it's just, it's so sad. Yeah, I did and, warn you, didn't I? Yeah, yeah. And, and Steve, as, as a young boy who... Um, would hassle his parents to pick up uh, relics from demolished homes and renovated homes and someone who was from the floor connected yeah. to that. Um, I, I'd love to share with our listeners your perspective on, um, you know, the direction that Melbourne's taken. Like do you, how do you feel about where Melbourne's at today? I, I would have to say that, well, we, we, uh, we were staying in the heart of Melbourne when we first arrived and you open up the curtains and you now feel like you're in just another city. Mm. And whereas beforehand we had, again, the most incredible Victorian architecture and, and some of the villas and some of the Victorian mansions have just been just demolished over, over the past 20 years. I think it's 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 really, it's changed so much. And it's I think quite shocking. Very much so. Mm. And I think it's as... Yeah, I, I, I was absolutely gobsmacked. And it begs the question as to whether it can be done better and that's something that I've been talking quite extensively to people about. Um, you know, I think the current government's approach is to, you know, mm. I think they, they did some analysis as to whether they were going to, to you know, create satellite cities outside of Melbourne uh, to accommodate, you know, the growing population, which we do. We at Melbourne mm. is heading towards the uh, highest population in Australia. Uh, certainly by 2030 or 2050, I think the figures are. Um, and so that was one strategy. The other strategy was to create, um, you know, medium to high density housing along the train lines, along the, uh, in, 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 in and around Melbourne city. And we've gone for that approach. Um, the, which is because shocking it, because it was, um, cheaper. Yeah. It, cheaper money wise. When you um, look at you know the what was it the, the uh, documentary the lost cities lost city melbourne. in melbourne yeah it's a really incredible eye opener into understanding mm. you know i'm was so profoundly shocked that that you know for the queen's visit they demolished they took off all of the um the kind of wrought iron mm. work lace work mm. and because we didn't feel that we were modern enough modern for her enough. visit. But the irony of that, <clears throat> that was, you know, the, the front page was the last remaining piece of ironwork on that kind of chemist, mm. which they used as the photograph to say, welcome to kind of Melbourne, you know, classical historic city. That's and that right. last piece of kind of, you know, of wrought ironwork, which they then demolished mm. <laughs> just so that she, you know, to make it modern. And I think that, you know, Melbourne yeah. has to kind of have a kind of psychological shift yeah, if they can into understanding that without these buildings and without the preservation of looking after this and really caring about your heritage and history, people aren't going to come here and feel the same relationship because That's it's right. just going to be work. You know, we, we just recently got back from Adelaide and the nice thing about Adelaide is that the, the, the architecture is allowed to breathe. Yeah, it has space true. around it at the same time. That's very true. Whereas if you look at, I mean, as an example, the State Library of Victoria, uh, mm. it's has everything coming up around it now and it's it's literally enclosed Crushed. yep mm. and it's 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 crushing it and it's so it's trying to find that balance at the end of the day it is about of, balance and you know i i understand that it's a more complex issue than just saying we must preserve our heritage because obviously we have a housing crisis 
Um, we have, um, you know, an ageing population and we need to consider those issues. You know, I've, I've said very extensively that I'm just holding my hand up for our heritage and saying we need to be part of the conversation. Um, so, you know, I, I don't want to oversimplify it, um, you know, and that's why sometimes I put, you know, little stories up on, on the Insta page where we look at um, preserving the historic building while putting a high-rise behind it yeah. as a, you know, but also, I think, you know, the more people that restore, the more people that share this information, mm. the less expensive it's going to be. It's true. And I think that old doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad. It just, you no, know. No, that's right. You know, the more people that are behind this and supporting it, the more it becomes accessible to everyone. Mm. And um, there's a reason that these homes are beautiful and that, that this, you know, the design of them, you know, gives you that space to breathe in them. Mm. Um it, it, it's such a shame. I think it's a really important thing. You know, we're lucky that we have English Heritage um, and Historic England that do a lot of, you know, that movement has really completely swept through the psychological kind of profile mm. of our country. And it isn't the same in France, interestingly enough. So, you know, the reason that we talked earlier about the buildings, you know, being accessible and not so expensive mm. in France, you know, the, Yes. Yeah, so just yeah, on that topic, um, can you, can, you know, a few years ago, Vince and I were looking at a chateau in France, you know, we were just kind of, uh, we, I think it was during the Christmas holidays, we were thinking, what are we going to do next year? Um, and we were looking, let's let's see what it costs to buy things around the world. And we're looking at chateaus in France and, and we're stunned by how relatively inexpensive they are. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we were lucky that we bought pre-COVID um, because, again, the culture in France doesn't mean they particularly want, you know, why would you buy an old building? Um, it's not the same as, as in England where, we, you know, we really, really care about the historical history. Um, and so we bought our, um, the chateau for about 400,000, which, you know. Euros. That's incredible. Euros, which is, you about, know, Is that about 800,000 Australian dollars, I yeah. think? Yeah. You know, that's 57 rooms and gazillions of acres and of parkland. And so, you know, it With was, all that before history, everyone yeah. runs out there on the internet and tries to buy, yeah. Well. yeah. And, you know, exactly. I think the most important thing is to realize that it, it will take time and it will take money to put her back on her feet. Yeah. And you can say that over a period of time, it's probably going to cost, you know, a million or so to be able to get all of the things up and running. Mm. But that's not that crazy. And, and when is, you, that, does, is that within the budget that you thought when you first walked through there? Well, we, we yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, we have the kind of we have the kind of A four piece of budget that we 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 laugh and look at a lot. <laughs> we have one too. We must compare notes. We should definitely frame them and go. This was our budget. Yeah, yeah. It, it again. I mean, I this wasn't my first project. I had a, a beautiful old uh, rectory up in Lincolnshire, which I restored back to its original. And and I think okay, that was back in two thousand and three. I think we budgeted about two hundred and fifty thousand. We we were within budget, but uh, but. I think we've learnt that in France, uh, trying to get anything done, you you almost have to. Budgets are different there. Yeah, very much so. Plus the mm, fact yeah. he's with me now, and uh, you know budget. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but yeah. I'm also not an easy person when it comes to visually saying, "Yeah, oh, you yes. know what? It's gonna have to look like this." And he goes, "Do you realise how expensive that is?" Like, yeah. Is. It but... sounds exactly like Vince and I. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> there's a normal way of doing it and there's Tim's way. Yeah, you, which is what he always says. But, you know, and, and I think we've had a little bit of a chat about this, Tim. Um, I read an article that you had, um, that you'd given to Effect magazine last year where you were talking about um, legacy. Mm. And, you know, I think um, for, I, I can really relate to that with Heather Bray. You know, Heather Bray is probably beyond the budget that we ever thought uh, we would be undertaking, but this is a legacy project, a generational home for our family and something that we feel really passionate about. And for someone like you and your experience and your deep understanding of, of what you're doing, um, the legacy I imagine would drive those decisions that you're making in a different way. I think so much of our life is about, well, certainly you know, mine is about legacy and about how much you're doing in your life and how short your life is yeah. and what you can leave behind as a legacy. That legacy of both yeah. of us um, mm. is really, really important. So it's the legacy of craftsmanship, the legacy of putting this mm. whole chateau back together. And I guess, you know, it's difficult because we're still in it, but our lives, the legacy of our lives design-wise and 
just the energy and the restoration of what you're putting back. Um, you know, the sad thing is we don't have any kids, which, you know, is is a shame because it would be great. It's like the kind of Willy Wonka chocolate, you know, golden true, ticket. You go, who's going to take this after <laughs> us? Yeah. And, I, and I, I do think about that a lot. I definitely, mm. you know, I've collected antique um, antiquarian books since I was 18. Mm. And, that you know, I'm not going to let those be split up. So those are going to have to go to someone. And, you know, whether I do that as a kind of Willy Wonka chocolate factory moment <laughs> where you go, right, the golden ticket goes to, or if I can find a single nephew of mine that actually would be interested, um, or even Steve's. So, yeah, yeah, a lifetime of collecting. You don't want this to kind of suddenly just go to auction. So I just wanted to encourage all of our listeners, uh, obviously, after hearing this amazing um journey uh, that Steve and Tim are on to go follow Restoration Chateau on Instagram. Um, I know I have been inspired by every post um, and, uh, you know, it, it's really a worthwhile journey from a historical and a restoration perspective and also to follow these amazing people that uh, we have here on the podcast today. That would be amazing. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Heather Bray 1854 Talks. We really value your feedback, so please give us a review on your preferred podcast platform. If you'd like to know more about our restoration journey, you can find Heather Bray 1854 on Facebook, Instagram and at heatherbray1854.com where you can also register for our newsletter. A big thanks to our special guests Tim Gosling and Steve Holmes. You can find out more about their restoration journey on their Insta page, which is restoration chateau this episode has been co-produced by julie federa and ann baker the music for heather bray 1854 talks was composed and performed by mason j the views thoughts and opinions expressed by our guests on this podcast are the individual views of that guest and don't necessarily represent the views thoughts and opinions of heather bray 1854 proprietary limited Content contained in this podcast episode is for information only and should not be relied upon. Listeners should seek their own professional advice on matters discussed.